Welcome to the City Life Podcast. I'm Tim Woody, the pastor of City Life Church in downtown Fort Worth. There is purpose for your life. There's a destiny you have yet to walk into, and there is hope regardless of what you're facing today. I encourage you to open your heart now to what God will be speaking to you over these next few minutes. And I'm excited to get into God's Word. So while you're, while you're giving right now, I just encourage you to multitask. Get your Bibles out, your Bible apps, whatever you're, you're going to use. But I want you to, you're going to need to follow along with me today because today I'm going to do a little bit of a verse-by-verse study of a passage of Scripture. So open your Bibles up to two locations, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. That's Hebrews 12, 1, and 2 Corinthians 4, 8. Hold on to that first scripture because that's where we're going to go first. While you're looking that up, uh, just to tell you, I took, a, I took a few days off this week and got out of town. It was nice just to, it was nice to leave town for a little bit, so we left. Uh, and, and I did something I've never done before. I, I've always wanted to do it, and we, we did this deal where we, we rode. We, we're going to go to South. It's just simply San Antonio. It's where my wife's family is. So, but I just hate I-35. Any of y'all just done with I-35? I'll just got to tell you, I used to think, that one of these days, they'll be finished with I-35. I remember thinking that when I was in college, and I would have to drive to San Antonio to see my beautiful fiance, and, uh, and it just never got done, and it still is never done, and it will never be done, and, and it, just, it just wears you out sometimes, like super high stress, so I thought, okay, this time we're going to do something really different. We're going to take Amtrak down to San Antonio, and so we did. got one of those little rooms where you kind of sit there and enjoy and they, they serve you meals and everything. It was kind of fun. It took a little longer than normal, but I noticed when I got there, I was totally chill. And when I got back, usually like when I get back, I'm like real uptight. And I came back, I was just so relaxed. And so it was actually very, very relaxing. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, we, had a, we had a good time. But while we were there, uh, Rebecca and I, we spent a little bit of time just exploring uh, downtown San Antonio. It's not like it's unfamiliar to us. We've been there so much, uh, but but it's just fun to to go back and, and just to look around things. And and we went back to the Alamo. You've got to go to the Alamo if you uh, you're not even a real Texan if you don't go to the Alamo. But it was fun just going back to the Alamo and looking around it. And I saw that they'd changed a few things. So like, hey, why aren't you letting us into these rooms and that rooms? Because I know I used to go into all parts of the Alamo. I said part of it's closed off now, so that so that we can. Uh, control humidity. I was like, I'm not going to sweat in there, okay? But I, I didn't get in too big of an argument with them. But, but right there, uh, overlooking the, the Hemisphere Plaza, which is where the 1968 World's Fair was held, uh, there's a 22-story, there's a, a it's a mid-rise tower that overlooks that area. And it's a hotel, and it's called Palacio del Rio. And those of you who are good Texans, you understand that means like the River Palace. That's, that's the, the name of the, of the hotel. And it's, it's, a, it's a really neat-looking looking hotel. And we talked a little bit to my father-in-law about it. He, and he said, oh, I know all about Palacio del Rio. Of course, he used to work in downtown. He worked at a print shop where he, they, translated, uh, they translated Christian literature from, uh, from English into Spanish and then distributed all over the nation. That's where he first started his working when he first uh, immigrated to the United States and became a citizen. 
And, and so he was telling us all the story of him, him working in downtown, and he watched Palacio del Rio go up. And he told us the story, and I looked up some of the, uh, some of the, the original footage of what happened there, and it's actually an architectural miracle. I'll tell you what happened is, is the World's Fair was coming up, and there were, some, there were some problems acquiring this property in order to build this brand new mid-rise, this, this, this state-of-the-art hotel. And they wanted to have it ready for, for, the, uh, for the World's Fair, but things just kept moving too slowly, and it just moved too slow. So what happened is they got right down to it, and they said, we do not have enough days to build this. It's not going to be finished in time for the World's Fair. In fact, it would take probably another six to eight, maybe up to a year longer to actually get this thing built. And the architect, uh, or the, I, I guess you'd have to say the, the, the head engineer, the, the guy who was running this project, he said, there's got to be a way. You see, the pressure was on. The money was there to do it, but the pressure was on. How are they going to do this thing? So in the midst of the pressure, he just said, we're going to scrap everything we know about this. I'm going to kind of just start with a clean head, a clean mind. And they devised a plan to set up two different work sites to build Palacio del Rio. Palacio del Rio was, began, they cleared out the area, and they dug the big hole. If you've ever seen a mid-rise or a high-rise go up, like I just watched one go up here a few years ago here in downtown. They have to dig a big hole in the ground to get it started, and they did. And, and, and as they were building that, they built it up to the fifth floor. Now, this is a 22-story building, but they only planned to build up to the fifth floor because the other two 22-stories, all the rooms for that were built off-site. So in a different location, six miles away, they set up this place where they began making, designing, making the rooms literally out of concrete. So these were like concrete building blocks, almost like Legos that they were, they were building, they were putting together, and they took the furniture and they put, it, they, they put the carpeting in, the wallpaper, everything, and the, the sinks, the bathtubs, and, and into these cubes. And they, they fastened it all down. They even fastened down televisions and lamps with light bulbs and everything. They fastened this in, and then they would bring these, these, uh, these hotel rooms, is what they were, and they would raise them up. They would take them up on a crane with something they called a whirlybird also, which, which helped navigate it, and they would simply slide it into location. They would slide it in and go get another one and another one and another one. Finally, this is like a 450-room hotel. Finally, the hotel was finished, and it opened up about 18 days prior to the World's Fair. And it is a marvel. It's a masterpiece. It's, it is, I, I believe, to my understanding, according to what I read, it was the fastest built mid-rise or even, even high-rise in the history of the United States. And it's an engineering miracle. But what happened is the design for that didn't come about until the crisis was right there. And for some of you, that's what you need right now. You need to know that you may be in a crisis. There may be a crunch that's on you, but there's a design that God has, and he's asking you to tune in to him and listen to him and follow him because he's going to order your steps and guide your steps as you get through your crisis. And I'm excited to share with you about this from God's Word. Uh, the, the topic I've been using over the past three weeks, the last two weeks and today, as I'm wrapping up this series, is the term resilience. And resilience, I define it this way. Resilience is the power to bounce back after the crucible of crisis. 
the power to bounce back after the crucible of crisis. Some of you are in the crucible of crisis. Some of you have just bounced back and said, we're in all different places. In fact, if you're not in a crucible of crisis, you probably will be within this next year, okay? So let's just be honest. Let's, let's, this is the kind of stuff we need to hear. Uh, two weeks ago, I talked about Jacob and how the crucible of crisis brought the best out of him, and God named him Israel. Uh, the following week, we talked. last week, we talked about Joseph in the crucible of crisis and how God transformed that situation and set him up to rescue an unrighteous nation along with his own family and incredible, incredible stories of rebounding. And today, I'm going to talk about another character. I'm actually moving to the New Testament today, and we're going to talk about Jesus. I'm talking today about the resilience of Jesus, and that is the best, the number one, the best person we could talk about from the scriptures. And we're going to look carefully at Jesus today, and, and, but, but I'll, I want to just warn some of you. Some of you might be thinking, okay, wait, I can understand Jacob, I can understand Joseph, but Jesus, like, he can be resilient because he's God. I mean, come on, wouldn't that be easy for him? You might say to yourself, well, I'm not God, so I can't be resilient like Jesus, so this isn't a good example for me. Well, I'm going to prove you wrong, all right? I'm going to prove you wrong today because Jesus is our primary example, and Jesus was 100% man while he was also 100% God. He's not a hybrid, okay? I've said this before. He's not your Prius, okay? He's not 50 50. He's not half and half. No, he, and that, that stuff of God's like he's half God, half man, that's mythology. That's, that's, that's that ancient stuff that you don't want to get into, okay? No, he is 100% God, but he's also, important to understand today, 100% man. Listen to this scripture. It's in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he made himself nothing. Why? Well, one reason is because he, he just decided right up front he's going to refuse to use his God nature to his own advantage, in other words, to get through things better while on earth. So he allowed that to be gone. So, so Jesus, he assumed a complete human nature while still being God, and that's good news for us, guys. That's really good news for us. And as a person who had a 100% human nature, he was resilient. And you can be resilient. (laughs) I mean, just think about what he did for us. Jesus assumed this complete human nature, body, mind, will, emotions, and he took that into himself. He took that upon himself. And as a human, Jesus experienced every type of ordinary limitation, every challenge that you and I face in life. He grew and he developed and he experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He experienced weariness and loneliness and sadness. He experienced the full wide range of human emotions and also the physical maladies that come along with living in a human body. He became man just like you and me. And, and I just want to mention something here. I just thought about this a minute ago. Men, especially, I, I encourage you to listen to this. Because Jesus became a man just like you. Today's culture is one that, that beats down masculinity and beats down men. And, uh, and I'm not in favor of that at all because the scriptures are not. <laughs> 
I believe in the, the beauty of femininity, the beauty of masculinity. God made man and woman, and, and we should thrive in who we are and be godly at it. Uh, and, and just because there's some ungodly men doesn't mean masculinity is bad. Now, that's called ungodliness, all right? Let's, let's begin to get a distinction here. But anyway, back to what I was saying. Men, I think it's really important that you hear what I'm sharing today because the, our culture is beating men down. Beating men down, beat them down, beat them down, beat them down. If you watch anything, you, you, you watch television programs or you watch uh, movies, there are always men that are being made fun of, that are being beat down and pushed down. And that's normal in our culture, but it should not be. So I want you men to listen up here because Jesus became a man just like you men. Think about this. You know your shortcomings. You know your failures. Sure, Jesus was without sin, but Jesus lived in a body just like Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, I want you to look at this. This is on the screen. Look at this verse. It says, he, he had to be made like them, like humans, like men, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make an atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, do you know that Jesus suffered through temptation? He is able to help those who are being tempted because he gets it. Hebrews 5.14 says something else. I want you to look at this on the screens. It says, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet as we are. Yet as we are tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I mean, do you see the beauty of this? Jesus felt what we feel. He experienced life in a human body. That Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully one of us, which makes Jesus our best example for resilience. We can, we can look up to him. We can look up, look up to him and look to him uh, when we're facing our challenges and our stressful situations and our trials, and we can still be resilient. See, because Jesus, he understands your struggles. He understands your temptations. He understands the pain that you're walking through. And he understands your weaknesses. The scriptures make it very, very clear. And by his Holy Spirit, he leads us and he helps us to be resilient. So what are you going through in your life right now? What's beating you down? Is it a work project that's just draining you? Is it a boss that's making your work miserable? Is it a physical struggle with your body that just seems to be unending? It's holding you down. Maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart. What is it? Have you been lied to? Have you been deceived? Are you just feeling constantly beat down by someone else who loves you? Do you feel overwhelmed with temptations that won't stop and they just keep coming at you? Do you even find yourself reverting to old sin patterns? Well, if any of that applies to you today, this message is for you. Because whatever is afflicting you, you can be resilient. Jesus was resilient and you can be resilient as well. So this is, a, this is a message of hope. Today, I want you to leave here more free, more liberated, more empowered, more strengthened than when you walked in here. 
You may have just barely crawled in here today, but you crawled into the right place because in this place there's transformation. In this place there's hope. In this place there's encouragement. And I'm so glad you showed up today. Now I want you to look at our main text, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, The book of Hebrews talks about the humanity of Jesus more than any other place in the Bible, and I love the book of Hebrews. Uh, and, uh, And I've already shared with you some passages from Hebrews, but Hebrews was written to the Jewish Hebrew Christians. That's why it's called Hebrews. Uh, and it uses really powerful rhetoric. It's written in a different way than any of the other texts from the New Testament. But it uses powerful rhetoric to demonstrate how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are attached and how they're connected and how Jesus Christ is the center of it all. So I love the book of Hebrews. And I, I have a challenge for you this week. This week, you, you have homework. I mean, I always give you a challenge of some sort. So I, I want you to read through the book of Hebrews this week. Some of you have been following the challenges. You've been reading through the story of Jacob, read through the story of Joseph. Now I'm going to challenge you to read through the book of Hebrews this week. In fact, tomorrow when we put out our study guide, I will have a link on there for you to subscribe to a YouVersion Bible plan to simply take you through the book of Hebrews in easy seven days. And, uh, and I just encourage you to read it because it'll, y- your, your eyes will be open to more of the beauty of who Jesus Christ is as you read through the book of Hebrews. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It's a powerful passage. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and so that you will not lose heart. Hold your Bibles. Keep them open to that passage because I want to talk through it. One of the first things that you see there is is, uh, some verbiage that talks about a great cloud of witnesses and uh, and and i did a little research on that and that and the, that terminology meant it just means a large host of eyewitnesses and ear witnesses people who have heard and who have seen the goodness of god and these people these these are a great cloud it's a great host of witnesses that's what the literal uh, meaning is but but these are people who have gone before you people who have already stepped into eternity people who lived their faith out they had their ups and they had their downs, but they were resilient. And, and really, it's, it's the people from the very beginning of time up until now. And there's a listing of them, uh, just really the beginning of a listing of them that's found in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter immediately prior. You'll get to read that this week. It's just incredible. But the way that, that chapter wraps up, they start going through person after person. And then at the very end, they just start saying, and all kinds of people who did this, all kinds of people who did this, all kinds of people who experienced this and this and this and this and this and this. And, this, and now it comes down to you. Basically, what this scripture is saying is you're not alone in your battle. The tough things you're facing right now have been faced by others who have made it through. And in a sense, it's like they're cheering you on. Yeah. Yes. I've got a yeah from a baby out of the mouths of babes. God's perfected phrase. You're not alone in your battle. Verse 1, though, it goes on to say something else. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
so if you're going to do this thing that God's called you to do, you've got, if you're going to be resilient, you need to jettison your encumbrances. You need to get rid of some of those encumbrances, the things that are holding you down. And in our culture, more things hold us down, I believe, than ever before in the history of mankind because we actually have more at our fingertips here, especially in this nation, in this city, especially those of us who live in the city, which is us, right? And, 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 and I'm talking about distractions, constant distractions, constant entertainment, constant stuff that takes your mind in different directions. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that we would literally be carrying computers around in our pockets that we could just spend all day on and go do nothing and be sucked into those things? And not only all of those distractions and encumbrances, but sin as well. Sin, worry, stress, fear. All the kind of stuff that's surrounding us. So I want you to imagine running a race, okay? The stands are full of people who are cheering you on. And you, what you've got to do is you've got, got to get rid of everything that's going to slow you down and hold you back. If any of you were in track when you were in high school or college, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to have the Cowtown Marathon. It's going to be happening on Saturday of Mother's Day weekend. But I'll tell you this, it'll be happening around downtown here. But you're not going to go out to the Cowtown Marathon, even though it's called Cowtown Marathon. You're not going to see a bunch of people running around in their cowboy boots. You won't see that. You're not going to see them carrying around a big backpack. Nobody's going to go camping and have a big camping backpack on their, on their marathon. No. What they're going to do is they're going to have all of the encumbrances off of them. And they're going to be wearing some really sleek, light shoes. And I'll tell you, those shoes are not going to be tied together. And they're not going to tie the shoestrings together because they don't want their feet to get entangled. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin is just like tying your shoestrings together and you try to go forward and keep tripping and falling. If you wonder why you keep tripping and falling, it's because you've tied your shoes together. <laughs> you might have all the right gear. You might be living light, but you're, you've got that on you, and it's holding you back. You can't take steps forward. And there's a race that's marked out for you. And that's what the Scripture's saying here. It's basically this, is that resilient people let go of sin, and they let go of encumbrances. So if you want to be resilient, you're going to have to do that. Now, verse 1 also says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Actually, I've never really seen this before. I've, I've preached this many times, but this time I came to that word. I said, no, there's a race marked out for us. It just doesn't say the race marked out for us. As Really, that means you as an individual. There is a specific race marked out for you that doesn't look like anyone else's race. There's a, and and on, in, in that race, there will be trials. There will be difficulties. There will be things that, that aren't going to look good. Things that, and there will be some wonderful times where you're just kind of running downhill. Yeehaw, yeehaw. And there are other times you're going to find yourself in a big mud pit. But that's the race marked out for you. Your race is not my race. And I'm glad for that. And my race isn't your race. And I'm glad for that, too. Some people say, man, I just feel like I want to be a pastor. And I get, I'll, I'll sit them down and give them about 15 reasons why they're crazy. I think I've talked more people out of being pastors than anything else. It's like the best way to lose friends is to be a pastor, all right? But, but you have a race to run. And that race to run does not look like anybody else's race. But the beauty of it, every one of our races, the meanderings and the turns and the twists, it all takes us to the same place, and that's the throne of God where we're going to meet together and where we're going to rejoice for eternity. But if you're going to be resilient while you're on this earth, you need to stick to your own race. 
the time of, I mean, this thing of envying other people's lives, envying the race other people are running, you don't know what they're facing. You don't know. They might, and I, I tell you, again, here in the city, we do a really good job of being polished, looking good, looking sharp, but I'll tell you what, right behind that exterior, there may be a big, big mess of a, of a race that a person's having to run on their own. Stop envying other people's lives. Stop envying other people's races. It's all different. You have a race to run that doesn't look like anyone else's, and it's for a reason. It's because it's going to cause you to intersect with certain people. It's going to cause you to experience certain things that's going to refine you, that's going to build your faith so that you can be everything God needs for you to be so that God's work can be accomplished in this earth. This is a master plan for the world. So... (laughs) Just stop debating with God about how hard your life is and just give in to the race he set out there for you. And how do you keep your faith high? How do you keep it high when you're on your race? Well, I'm glad you asked me because verse 2 also says this. Verse, one, verse 2 says this. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on one man, one man, one man only. And that's Jesus. If you're going to be resilient, you need to focus your gaze on Jesus. Focus your gaze on Jesus. Stop looking at the problems. Stop focusing on the people who are frustrating you. Stop gazing at at the other people running their races, seeing if you can beat them or not. You're not in a race against other people. You're in a race to the throne of God. Stop stressing out over the broken down car. Stop stressing out over the discouraging job. Get your eyes on Jesus and watch what will begin to change in your own life. I was raised in church and uh, we used to sing this song that I loved growing up. It said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Powerful words of poetry put to music that I used to sing over and over as a child, and it's just, it's in me. It's in me. It's funny because sometimes when I find myself looking around at everything around me and I'm frustrated and I might be angry and I might just be exhausted and wore out, and that song comes back to my memory. That's why singing in church is so important. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Just look at him. Look at him. Other stuff's going to look less and less and less important. Verse 2 goes on to say this. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about that, though. What is the joy that was set before him? Now, at first glance, you might look at that and say, well, the Scripture says he gets to go sit on his throne. I mean, how cool is that? No, actually, he had already had his throne. He's always had his throne. The the throne was nothing new for him. No, there was a joy, a new joy that was going to be established when he took that throne in the future. What is it? What is that joy? What is it? Well, the joy... And actually, think about this. It actually had to be an incredible amount of joy in his mind and in his heart that would allow him to endure crucifixion for a crime he never committed. He had to endure all that because he knew something good was on the other side of it. Something good is on the other side of it. What is the good thing that's on the other side of it? It's not the throne. It has to be something else. I believe that the joy that was set before Jesus 
was you. 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 You are the joy that was set before Jesus. He was thinking about you when he was on the cross. He was thinking about you and and seeing you free from sin, not living under guilt or shame and condemnation. He was thinking about you and that place he wanted to prepare for you so that you can be with him for eternity, free from oppression, free living life to the full like never before with him. And you won't be in the confines of your own earthly body anymore. You won't have to deal with sickness. You won't have to deal with death or disease. You won't have to deal with temptation. You're not going to have to deal with any of the junk that life gives us. He was thinking about you. And that vision of the future empowered Jesus to be resilient. Then look at verse 3. It says, Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, that verse right there tells me that our ability right now to not lose heart in our own race actually comes from a similar place where Jesus got his joy from because we're supposed to look to him okay for some reason the joy that Jesus was experiencing got him through his trial so we're supposed to experience and think about a joy that's going to get us through our trials that's going to cause us to be resilient See, the joy that was set before Jesus was you. But the joy set before us is Jesus. It's being with your creator for eternity. See, resilient people keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. We keep our hearts and our minds focused on him because he kept his heart focused on us. Because he did that, he got through. And if we keep our eyes focused on Him, we get through. Your strength, I'll tell you where it's found. It's found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Your resilience, your endurance, your compassion, your love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, long-suffering, all that, it comes from Jesus. You're going to find it there in Jesus. That's why we fix our eyes on Him. And that's why it's important that we sing to him. That's why important it's important that we're in the word. That's why it's important we come together because it causes us to jolt our brains a little bit from the craziness of this life and get our eyes back on Jesus. I want to tell you, you can run your race. I'll say it again. You can run your race. Now I want you to look in that second passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, because Paul, in this passage, he writes about his own trials. He writes about his own challenges. He writes about his own frustrations. I think mean, Paul's one of my heroes from the Bible. I, I think he's an amazing man, powerful missionary, church planter from the New Testament. Him and his team, they, just, they did unbelievable things to get the church started in the ancient Roman Empire. Actually, so much of what he did is, allows us to do what we do today. So many of his writings allow us to have context for how to live out our faith but look at 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 and 9 I like this I like this some of you some of you you need to you need to really you need to highlight this in your scriptures you need to maybe some of you need to put this to memory write it out he says we are hard pressed on every side but we're not crushed (laughs) perplexed that means what in the world is going on you ever feel that way perplexed but not in despair 
are persecuted. But we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. How in the world is that possible? Well, I'll tell you what. With Paul, he kept his eyes on Jesus. He just looked full in his wonderful face. His gaze was on Christ. Then as he was running his race, he found that he just wasn't going to be overly stressed about earthly things, even though he was hard-pressed, even though he was crushed, even though he was persecuted, even though he was struck down. He's not going to focus on that. Lift your eyes up from the mud pit that you're in. Get on your feet and see Jesus. There's something amazing out there, and he's cheering you. There's a great cloud of witnesses as well. So my challenge today is just simply this. Keep running your race because your best is yet to come. And who is your best? (laughs) It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I'd like for everyone in this room just to bow your heads for just a moment. And if you are not in right relationship with Jesus Christ, before we leave this room, I want you to have the opportunity to receive him as your Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, you need to give your life to Christ. You know, you know that if Jesus were to come, you were today or if you were to die today you you just know that your eternity would not be secure well he died for you the joy that he had was thinking about you being in eternity with him and he wants you with him if that's you this morning you want to receive christ into your life would you at the count of three lift your hands for me so that i can see your hand i want to connect my faith with yours and i want to pray with you so you can receive christ would you do that one two three lift your hand up high Thanks. Thanks. Who else? Thank you. You can put the hands down. Thank you. As you lifted your hands today, that was a a way of saying, I need Christ. I need Jesus. I want my sin gone for eternity. If you prayed that prayer with me, if you lifted your hand, I want you to pray this prayer with me. And I also want the rest of the congregation to pray it as well. And as you pray these words, uh, congregation, I do want you to pray it as an encouragement to those who are praying it and giving their lives to Christ in this room right now. Come on. If you lifted your hand, pray this with me. Congregation, pray it as well. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Wash me in your precious blood. I choose today to give my life to you, to serve you, to turn from my past and embrace the future that you have for me. Thank you for rescuing me from darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like for us to all stand. Have you discovered your street of influence? Whether it be family, government, business, arts and entertainment, faith, health and vitality, or education, head over to culturalstreets.com and discover your street today.